Time for QuackCast 160. Wow. Do two half-truths make up a complete truth or a complete falsehood? I swear that the evidence I shall give shall be the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. The interwebs are not a court of law, that is for sure. The whole truth, an interesting idea. I have no idea how applicable Gödel's theorems are outside of mathematics, but from a practical point, knowledge is always incomplete. There is always too much to know and too little time and brain power to acquire perfect knowledge of a topic. It is why medicine is a challenge. You have to synthesize all the available data, which is often incomplete. You have to decide what is quality information, what is not, and why and how a given study or fact fits into the overall picture on a continuous asymptotic journey towards unobtainable total knowledge. But you do try for the truth, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Half-truths, partial stories, can be hard to challenge, in part because, well, they are half-true. They have an air of truthiness. It is perhaps much easier to counter an out-and-out lie. Well, maybe not. I'm thinking Wakefield here. I suspect that in having to admit that half-truths have some validity, it renders them more believable. The world of pseudomedicine and pseudoscience is filled with half-truths. I wonder when I read these half-truths whether the author is deliberately avoiding all the information, especially since the rest of the story often results in the weakening of the impact of the half-truth. Paul Harvey could have had a field day with the anti-vaccine literature. Quote, One of the greatest challenges facing young people today is the large-scale availability of half-truths and manipulated facts. An unpronounceable name and the unseen terrorist. Influenza. Beware the half-truth. You may have gotten a hold of the wrong half. Author unknown. Take, do not believe everything you read about flu deaths from the October 2014 Journal of Advanced Practice Nursing. As best I can tell, this is a peer-reviewed journal. You know, peer as in to appear partially or dimly. I imagine someone squinting over the top of their glasses at the manuscript, muttering, that appears to be a paper about influenza death. Let's publish it. They start, quote, flu results in about 250,000 to 500,000 yearly deaths worldwide, Wikipedia tells us. Typical estimate is 36,000 deaths a year in the United States, adding that those numbers are controversial because they are estimates. One would think that advanced practice would include checking the facts from the original source with, oh, I don't know, a Google search? That 36,000 number is an estimate and an outdated estimate from 1999. They seem not to have paid attention to the more recent estimates from 2010 that use better models to estimate flu deaths. Why get all upset about the evil CDC using old, outdated statistics? The more recent estimates have influenza deaths varying from year to year. Quote, During the past three decades, the estimated number of annual influenza-associated deaths from respiratory and circulatory causes range from a low of 30 349 to a high of 48,614 deaths. 
So the 36,000 deaths is one of those half-truths. Once the best we had, if flawed, estimate of influenza deaths, but no longer. Trying to determine how many deaths are due to influenza is tricky. There are direct deaths and indirect deaths from influenza, such as secondary bacterial pneumonia. They ask, quote, but why are flu and pneumonia bundled together? Is the relationship so strong or unique to warrant characterize them as a single cause of death? Implying that they are not. Again, it depends. For example, for H1N1 co-infections and deaths, quote, the incidence of influenza A H1N1 infection and community-acquired pneumonia during the pandemic period was 19%. We studied 128 patients. 33% had a bacterial co-infection. The most frequently isolated pathogens were Streptococcus pneumoniae, 62%, and Pseudomonas aeruginosa, 14%. Predictors for bacterial co-infection were chronic obstructive pulmonary disease and increase of platelet counts. The hospital mortality was 9%. Although in that study, having a bacterial superinfection was not associated with increased death. In prior pandemics, Bacterial superinfections were perhaps a more important cause of death in influenza patients. Quote, the majority of deaths in the 1918-1919 influenza pandemic likely resulted directly from secondary bacterial pneumonia caused by common upper respiratory tract bacteria. Less substantial data from the subsequent 1957 and 1968 pandemics are consistent with these findings. The authors of JAPN conclude, quote, the article's answer is no. Most pneumonia deaths are unrelated to influenza. But that is backwards. The question is, how many influenza deaths are the result of a secondary bacterial pneumonia? Sometimes it is, sometimes it isn't. And then there are vascular events, heart attacks and strokes, and exacerbation of cardiopulmonary diseases like heart failure and COPD, set off by influenza that subsequently kills people. Influenza kills those people as well. Arguing that they are not flu deaths, as suggested, is akin to arguing that the only handguns you should count are those who are pistol whipped to death. Otherwise, they died of bullets, bleeding, or major organ trauma, but not guns. The final point of the essay is that the CDC played up flu deaths to get people to take a vaccine they did not need. This is where the summation of multiple half-truths equal one complete falsehood, the intimation that the CDC is manipulating data for nefarious reasons. This is one of the curiosities about vaccine opponents and pseudomedical providers. Somehow, they just cannot wrap their heads around the fact that most of the time, in reality-based medicine, we really truly are making recommendations because the preponderance of data suggests it is the right thing for people to do. Then, as I finish this part of the essay, I discovered that the article is actually a Huffington Post article published by the Journal of Advanced Practice Nursing with no attribution that I could find, as are the other articles on the site. Go figure. I was always under the impression it was tacky to publish the copyrighted material of others without attribution, although I cannot log on to the site to see if permission, etc., are behind the paywall, as I am not a member. I suppose the take-home is, do not believe everything you read, 
in advanced practice nursing. Measles. Quote, a half-truth is a whole lie. Yiddish proverb. There is no shortage of measles articles of late for some reason. Go figure. Some contain too numerous to count examples of half-truths. For example, Roman Bystrianics, B-Y-S-T-R-A-I-N-Y-K, Measles and Measles Vaccine, 14 Things to Consider. He starts, one, measles death rate had declined by almost 100% before the use of the measles vaccine. That is wonderful. And half the story. How about measles cases? Cases of measles didn't fall precipitously until after the vaccine became widespread. They never show that graph. Instead, they show a section of the graph using a different scale on the y-axis and a different time interval on the x-axis to minimize the effect. Please, I know what website he visits. Look carefully at the graph. Cases went from about 450 per 100,000 to 300 per 100,000 from 1934 to 1962. And after the vaccine, locally acquired measles went to, oh, zero out of 100,000. And yes, measles was declining before the vaccine. The United States went from 500,000 cases a year to 50 cases a year only after the vaccine was introduced. There was a 99.9% .9 reduction in cases of measles after the vaccine. Sadly, the estimated decrease in mortality was only 39%. Measles can still be fatal. Controlling infections is always multifactorial, from understanding the epidemiology to nutrition to quarantine. And for the rest of the world, measles is still a scourge. Worldwide, an estimated 20 million people get measles and 146,000 people die from the disease each year. That's 440 deaths every day, or 17 deaths an hour. And about 1 in 1,000 cases died in the United States until 1963, the year the vaccine was introduced. Quote, during this year, the whole of New England had only five deaths attributed to measles. Note the only, only five deaths. Only 10 heartbroken patients, 20 heartbroken grandparents, plus brothers and sisters and aunts and uncles all sobbing at the gravesite. How many measles deaths in the last decade in the United States when our vaccination rates were maximal? Zero, none, zip, zilt, nil, nada. No mother needed to hold their only lifeless child in their arms because of measles. Road Dahl's daughter, he wrote Charlie in the Chocolate Factory, need not have died in 1962, a year before the vaccine. Olivia, my eldest daughter, caught measles when she was only seven years old. As the illness took its usual course, I can remember reading to her often in bed and not feeling particularly alarmed about it. Then one morning, when she was well on the road to recovery, I was sitting on her bed showing her how to fashion little animals out of colored pipe cleaners. And when it came time for her to make one herself, I noticed her fingers and her mind were not working together, and she couldn't do anything. 
Are you feeling all right? I asked her. I feel all sleepy, she said. In an hour, she was unconscious. In 12 hours, she was dead. From his diary, got to the hospital, walked in. Two doctors advanced on me from the waiting room. How is she? I'm afraid it's too late. I went into her room. Sheet was over her. Doctor said to nurse, go out, leave him alone. I kissed her. She was warm. I went out. She is warm, I said to the doctors in the hall. Why is she warm? Of course, he said. I left. That's the whole truth of measles and what the vaccine prevents. The rest of the article contains some historical curiosities. The 1963 measles vaccine caused a severe type of disease called atypical measles and a recounting of some of the over-exuberance of the measles vaccine programs that have no application whatsoever to the vaccine today. Quote, measles was supposed to be eradicated in 1967 and a single shot was said to provide lifelong immunity. End of quote. Somehow I get the impression that measles vaccine should have emerged with perfect understanding. That, unfortunately, is not how the world works. They did the best they did with the tools they had at the time, and those tools saved the lives of millions. Our understanding of measles and immunity has evolved, and with it the efficacy and safety of the vaccine has improved. As the author notes, quote, measles is not serious in well-nourished people. But forgetting to mention that in the current outbreak, about 15% of cases have been hospitalized. And the author has issues with a consistent argument, first saying measles is no big deal. Then he also argues that there is no such thing as measles, that doctors are misidentifying other illnesses with a fever and a rash as measles. He seems surprised that in communities with no measles, because of vaccinations, the illnesses that look like measles are due to other infections, implying that doctors are misdiagnosing measles in the past as well. He also suggests, quote, now, whereas natural measles exposure generally left the person with reliable lifelong immunity, measles vaccines leave the individual with waning immunity. End of quote. Probably not so. It is more likely that when a disease runs rampant in a community, adults are getting reinfected and their immunity is boosted with each epidemic rather than a single natural infection giving perfect lifelong immunity. Quote, However, when one examines the neutralizing antibody levels before and after an epidemic of measles, one finds that the reinfection rate is high in those with low antibody levels. In one study, for example, 50% of the subjects with initial neutralizing antibodies of 1 to 2 to 1 to 8 became reinfected where those with levels of 1 to 16 or higher escaped. Almost all the cases of reinfection are clinically inapparent. After live virus vaccination, the antibody levels also tend to fall in person living in isolated islands where measles has not been observed, suggesting the possibility that the persistence of antibody level after measles vaccination depends on reinfection and the booster effect produced by exposure to wild virus. Whether from disease or vaccine, often the only way to maintain high antibody levels and protection against an organism is to be re-exposed either from natural disease or revaccination. Personally, I would rather get a booster vaccine as an adult than be boosted by recurrent disease epidemics. But that's just me. 
Measles is technically eradicatable. Render pests probably jumped from cattle to humans to become measles. A couple of years ago, render pest was eradicated from the planet, although I half expect us to return the favor and eventually have measles jump back into cattle. To eradicate measles, which we could do, we will need more than half-truths. Quote, it's not enough to be able to tell a lie with a straight face. Anybody with enough gall to raise on a busted flush can do that. The first way to lie artistically is to tell the truth, but not all of it. Robert A. Heinlein, Time Enough for Love. And that ends the 160th QuackCast. Go to edgydoc.com to find links to my growing multimedia empire. And of course, write me glowing reviews on iTunes. My first batch of reviews got lost by Apple. Go figure. Now I have to start fresh with my reviews. Thanks again for listening. Talk to you next time. Bye.